But the passage this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. You could follow along in your bulletins or you could follow in your own Bibles. Luke chapter 19, beginning in the first verse. And if you're able, if you would please stand as I read aloud the Word of God. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Would you please be seated and would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we ask this morning that you would be with us here through the proclamation of your word. We ask that through your word, your spirit would be working to enable us in obedience to follow our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that your spirit would be working to show us our need of you, that through this account of Zacchaeus, Lord, you would be glorified that your son would be lifted up, and that we would be sanctified in the process. We thank you. We give you all glory and honor. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. Well, about two and a half weeks ago, uh, a friend of our family and somebody that was well known uh, in the town that I'm from Uh, passed away. His name was Ron Purcell. He was 80 years old. And many of you, uh, or probably all of you, don't know the name, but he was very well known in our community. He was a very successful business owner. He owned uh, Viking Chocolates and Viking Food Group. But he wasn't primarily known in our community for his business acumen. He was known rather for his work within the community. More than 50 years ago, Ron and his wife Marsha started what was called Action Impact. It was an organization that worked with teenagers in the area, sharing with them the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Ron, more than 50 years ago, began investing all of his possessions and his money into this ministry. He built a multi-million dollar clubhouse where high schoolers from all three counties in our area would come and they would each Friday evening would have fellowship together, they would hear the preaching of the Word, and they would share their own testimony with one another. Four times a year, Ron would take 
uh, all, uh, however much money it cost, and he would rent out an entire sports complex. And he would invite high schoolers from every high school in the area to come to an all-nighter. And hundreds of students would gather for an all-nighter, playing sports together and then sitting to hear the, the preaching of God's Word. It was an absolutely amazing testimony. And as I thought about Ron's life, I thought that his impact on students in our area, it can't be measured in hundreds of students or even, even thousands of students. It had to be 10,000 or more students that were impacted by Ron Purcell for the sake of the gospel. And as I th- reflected on his life, I thought how interesting it was that Zacchaeus demonstrates very much the same attitude at the end of this passage. You see, in the story of Zacchaeus, Jesus enters the city of Jericho, and we know very little about Zacchaeus other than he's a rich man who was a chief tax collector. And through the process of just eight or nine verses, we witness nothing of an outward change or an external change with Zacchaeus, but by the end of the passage, it is evident that there's been an internal change, that something has changed in his heart, and it's reflected in his posture towards his possessions. That the things that he once clung to, that he he clings so closely to, he now holds them with an open hand and he considers them as rubbish for the sake of the gospel. That he's willing to give them all up for the sake of Jesus Christ. That's what happens in the passage this morning with Zacchaeus. It's what I witnessed in Ron Purcell's life as a student in high school. And it's what we're going to talk about as we look at this passage this morning. So Luke chapter 19 is another story of division. Throughout the gospel of Luke, we have seen divisions. And it's often the division between the unchanged and the changed heart. Hearts that are unchanged by the Word of God and hearts that are changed by the Word. There's a clear division in Luke chapter 19. And so that's what we're going to speak about this morning. I'm going to write it as we go. I've gotten in the habit, I now enjoy doing this, and I've heard from a number of children that it's helpful to see this written out, okay? So we're going to begin in this passage. The first thing we're going to look at is the unchanged hearts. There are unchanged hearts in this passage. Zacchaeus is not the only character who's mentioned in the text. When we're looking at the passage, the unchanged hearts are represented by the crowds that surround Jesus. Beginning in verse 1, it says that Jesus entered Jericho and he was passing through. And as we continue reading, we'll hear about these crowds. But let me just give you an introduction to the events that are happening in Luke chapter 19. If you'll remember, the gospel of Luke can be divided into a few sections. The first section of the gospel of Luke is the introduction to Jesus' ministry. But beginning in Luke chapter 9, there is a change in the flow of the gospel of Luke. For in Luke chapter 9, it says that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. And beginning in Luke chapter 9, we have Jesus journeying from the northern northern regions of Galilee towards Jerusalem all along the way, predicting his betrayal and his crucifixion. So from Luke chapter 9 to the end of Luke 19 is Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. But if you were to look ahead to the 20th chapter, you'll find that Jesus in Luke chapter 20 enters into Jerusalem. So the 19th chapter is the culmination of this movement of the Gospel of Luke. He's about to enter Jerusalem and to be crucified and then to resurrect, okay? But Luke 19 is the last step before his arrival in Jerusalem. He arrives in the city of Jericho. 
Jericho was 40 miles from Jerusalem. It would have been Jesus' last stop before entering the city, and Jericho was itself a pretty booming city, okay? There were many people in Jericho. There was a prosperous economy in Jericho. And Jesus, in the first verse, enters the city. Now, if you want to understand the scene that's happening in Luke chapter 19, you have to imagine a parade in a, uh, a city or a large town, a Mardi Gras parade or a holiday parade. Have you ever been to one of those? I think most people have, okay? You can nod your heads if you have. Good. Some of you have, at least. You know the parade. The crowds are gathering along the roads. The parade is moving through the streets, and everybody's jostling for a position to be able to see what's happening as the parade goes by. It's exactly what's happening in Jericho at the beginning of Luke chapter 19. And again, it says he entered Jericho, and he was passing through. Now, before we get to the man named Zacchaeus, we have mentioned here a few times the crowd that was around Jesus. And you know the thing about the crowd that we notice Okay, the crowd has all the interaction with Jesus that Zacchaeus has. They, they hear him. They are there with him. They're beside him. They're probably bumping up against him. They are in close proximity to Jesus. They hear the words that he's proclaiming, and yet it's obvious from this passage that their hearts remain unchanged, okay? Their hearts remain unchanged. I think the word or the phrase that's used in verse 1 is a good phrase to describe what's happening with them because Jesus entered Jericho and he was passing through, okay? Passing through is a great phrase to describe what's happening with the hearts of the crowd, their unchanged hearts. Jesus comes into their life but quickly passes through. There's no long-lasting impact or change or effect in the, in the hearts of the crowd. Now, you might be wondering, well, how do you know this, okay? I think it's obvious from Jesus' interaction with them, but it's also obvious from verse 7, because as Jesus goes into the home of Zacchaeus, it says, when they, that's the crowd, when the crowd saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And one of the great evidences of the unchanged heart is that the unchanged heart has no need for Jesus. It is satisfied in its own righteousness. It sees no need for Jesus. It might be intrigued by Jesus. It might be interested or curious in what Jesus has to say, but it has no need for Jesus, and therefore when the unchanged heart looks around it, it sees a bunch of unrighteous people who need some help or need something, but are very much unlike me. For I am righteous and self-sufficient, and you are not like me, okay? That's the nature of the unchanged heart. Therefore, the crowd grumbles when Jesus goes into the house of Zacchaeus. Now, behind what's happening in this passage concerning the unchanged heart is a number of biblical categories and theological important phrases that we've learned through the Gospel of Luke. And let me just talk about them so that we can understand what's happening in the hearts of the crowd, the unchanged heart. All right, and I'm going to draw a picture. It's a picture of a heart. And I know it's not anatomically correct. I know that's not what a heart actually looks like. That's okay, okay? The Bible says a number of interesting things about the human heart, okay? If you were to look up the word heart in your Bible, you'd find that it's mentioned 896 times in the Bible. That's a, a lot of times, right? The heart is mentioned. Now, the Bible speaks about the heart not as the thing that's pumping blood throughout our bodies, but rather as the place where the soul rests, where the true individual resides, okay? The Bible speaks about the heart of man as that is the core of the being, 
It is where we resolve things. It is where we believe things. It is uh, who we are at the very foundation of our being. That's the way the Bible speaks about the heart. And the Bible has some interesting things to say about the heart. So let me just write a few of those down, okay? The first mention of the heart in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 9. In Genesis chapter 9, I'm just going to write here, Genesis 9. In Genesis 9, God is speaking to Noah, and what does he say? That the thoughts and the intentions of the heart of man are evil continually. You remember that, right? So we can write that. The thoughts and the intentions of the heart are evil continually. That's God diagnosing the heart of man. Solomon would later repeat that phrase again in Ecclesiastes. He repeated it a number of times. The, the thoughts and the intentions of the heart are evil continually. You fast forward, the, another mention of the heart, Genesis, uh, Jeremiah 17.9. You remember what the prophet Jeremiah says about the heart? That the heart is, above all else, it is deceitful. It is deceitful. And that the heart is sick. Okay, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all else, and the heart is sick. Who can diagnose it, right? That's what Jeremiah says in chapter 17, verse 9. Zechariah, Zechariah says that the heart is as hard as a diamond, evil, deceitful, sick, hard. And Zephaniah, Zephaniah has an interesting phrase about the heart. He says that a man says in his heart, I am and there is no other. The man says in his heart, I am, and there is no other. I would call that the self-sufficiency of the heart or the self-satisfaction of the heart. The heart is evil, it's deceitful, it's sick, it's hard, it's self-satisfied. One of the perplexing things to me is when somebody says, you know, I, I believe that the heart is generally good. I believe that people are generally good. Or I believe that the Bible says that, that people in their hearts are, are pretty much good, okay? And often when somebody says it to me, I say, well, where are you reading that in the Bible, okay? Of the 896 times that the word heart is mentioned in the Bible, more than 850 of them are in a negative connotation, okay? The Bible overwhelmingly speaks about the human heart as being corrupt, evil, deceitful, sick, hard, and self-satisfied. You flip to any of those passages, you'll find it again and again, okay? This is the heart of the crowd that Jesus speaks to. It is the the heart of the unchanged man. And you see, though this crowd is in close proximity to Jesus, and though they're hearing His Word being proclaimed, and they're, they're being witnesses, eyewitnesses to the work of Christ, you see what's happening? The Word of God is there in their presence, but the Word of God cannot penetrate the heart that is evil, deceitful, sick, hard, and self-satisfied. It has no effect. It rolls right off of them. It doesn't sink into their hearts, and there's no change in them. And so Jesus, again, passes through. Right? He, he passes right through like this parade moving through Jericho. He's there, and he's gone, and they are unaffected by his presence. Okay? This is the crowd. This is the crowd that we read about in, in Luke chapter 19. Right? But we find out something very different about Zacchaeus, don't we? Okay, so Zacchaeus is introduced in this story. It's the first time we ever run into Zacchaeus. And here's a few things we learn about Zacchaeus. First of all, in verse 2, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. 
And I've been telling you through the whole Gospel of Luke that tax collectors are the most hated people in all of Israel. But I have to say I was wrong. Okay, I, I forgot there was another category. All right? There are the tax collectors, and then there was the chief tax collector. The chief tax collector was the most hated person in all of Israel. All right? Because the chief tax collector was the one who was responsible for a certain region or an area of the tax collectors. And the chief tax collector was primarily responsible for the downward pressure on the tax collectors to make sure that they're getting all the money and more to line the pockets of everybody in the line of succession to make sure that we're, we are supporting ourselves, okay? So the chief tax collector was very hated. And this is Zacchaeus. And the passage says here that he was a chief tax collector and he was rich. In verse 3, he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So you get the picture. If you've ever been in a parade uh, and you're watching the parade and you're, you are either shorter or you've got short children with you and they're saying, I can't see and you can't get to the front and maybe you try and put them on your shoulders or you're going to run and sit up a big hill and, so you can look down on the parade. We all have different solutions for figuring out how to see the parade. Zacchaeus decides he's going to climb a tree. He's small in stature. So he ran on ahead. He climbed up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus, for he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down, and he received him joyfully. Now let me ask you a question, okay? What has changed in the heart of Zacchaeus? Why does he receive Jesus differently than the, the rest of the crowd? For the rest of the crowd, Jesus was passing through. But from the very introduction of Zacchaeus in verse 2, we find that he has an entirely different posture towards Jesus. Why? What has happened? Well, you, think, you probably see where we're going with this. Zacchaeus has a changed heart, okay? Zacchaeus has a changed heart in this passage. But you see... One of the things it reveals to us, and, and we know this from all of Scripture, but it's an important recognition, the heart that is evil, deceitful, sick, hard, and self-satisfied must have some outward force upon it, some, some force that brings about change in the heart for the Word of God to be able to penetrate deep in the heart, to be received, and then for the heart to be changed, right? Here's how the Bible describes it. Let's say Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 8 and 9, what does Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say? Okay, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And faith is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Okay, So faith, the gift of God, must be worked into the heart. John chapter 6, Jesus says the same, way, uh, same thing in a different way. In John chapter 6, as Jesus is speaking, he says, No one comes unto me unless the Father draws him unto me. The Father who has sent me draws him unto me, all right? John chapter 6. No one comes unto me unless the Father draws him to me. There must be a work done on the heart of the human being whereby the unchanged heart is changed and what is evil becomes good, what is deceitful becomes honest, what is sick becomes well, what is hard becomes soft, and what is self-satisfied becomes gratified by the Father, okay? Gratified by God. This is what has to be happening in the heart of Zacchaeus 
for him to respond in this way to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you might be saying, well, then where does that change take place in this passage? As it often is with the heart that's being changed by God, it's hard to pinpoint it. But let me tell you at least one phrase that's important in our recognition of this. It's in verse 3. Here's Zacchaeus. It says he was seeking to see who Jesus was. That's, a, that's just a, a full phrase, okay? It's a full phrase. And I'll tell you the word seeking that's used here is not the typical Greek word, which I believe is thunanomai, uh, okay? Which is the word that means to, to look or to find, okay? Not the word that's used in, in Luke chapter 19, verse 3, but instead it is the Greek word zeteo, all right? And I always write it, and I know it means nothing, but I'm going to explain it, okay? Zeteo. Zeteo is the word that means to seek in a deep internal way, okay? It's the word that would be used if somebody said, you know, I'm going to take a year away from work, and I'm just going to find out who I am, all right? That is a depiction of a, of a deep internal seeking, okay? That's not surfacy. It's not peripheral. It, is, it has to do, again, with the very core of our being. In Luke 19, verse 3, it's the word that is used by Luke as he records this, and he says that Zacchaeus was seeking. He had a deep internal churning. There was something going on in his heart. He was seeking to see who Jesus was. And I think that there's more to that than just him saying, okay, is that Jesus? Is that Jesus? I just want to pick him out from the crowd. I believe the deep internal churning happening in Zacchaeus' heart was, was literally, I want to know Jesus. I want to experience him. I want to be near to him. I want to see more of him. I'm desperately interested in this man, Jesus. There is something in my heart that is drawing me unto him. I believe verse 3 is a depiction of this exact thing that is happening in the heart of Zacchaeus. The gift of faith being given to him. That John 6, no one comes to the Father lest uh, no one comes to me lest the Father draws him to me, that he's being drawn by the Lord God towards Jesus. Now, with that being the case, then the rest of this passage makes perfect sense, doesn't it, right? Because here's Zacchaeus, and man, the guy is desperate, and he has to get in the tree to, to see Jesus. He just wants to be near to him, and here comes the parade with Jesus and all the people, the crowds that are gathering around him, and what does Jesus do? He stops, and I don't think it was odd that Zacchaeus was in the tree I would imagine there were other people in other trees, okay? I just think it was probably pretty normal for what was happening in Jericho. But Jesus stops at the foot of the tree where Zacchaeus is, and he calls him by name. And he says, you, Zacchaeus, hurry down. Get down here. And he doesn't just say, as the song says, for I'm coming to your house today, okay? He says, as it's depicted in the passage here, he says, for I must stay at your house today, right? And the word must there is a, is a word of necessity. It's often translated as it behooves me. It is necessary for me. There is no other way. I must come to your house today. I think that's a reflection of Jesus' recognition of the work that is being done in the heart of Zacchaeus. For Jesus knows that his heart is being drawn, that the gift of faith has been given to him. And he says, Zacchaeus, I'm, it is necessary. I must come to your house today. 
And then it makes sense, of course, that Zacchaeus shimmy down the tree and he's quick to the ground and he says, come on, Jesus, let's go. And he opens his house. That's what it means in verse 6. Is, it says he hurried down, he came down, and he received him. The word received is the word that means to welcome into the home. He receives him into his home and it says he did it joyfully. And I think a better translation would be that he received him with rejoicing. Okay? He received him with rejoicing into his home. All of this passage makes sense if we understand what's happening to the heart of Zacchaeus. That God has begun a work and has begun to change the evil and the deceit and the sickness and the hardness and the self-satisfaction that is taking place in the heart of the unchanged man. You see what happens when these things are changed. The Word of God begins to sink into the heart. It begins to penetrate deeply, and the words that Jesus shared with Zacchaeus had meaning. They had lasting impact. They rooted themselves deep within him. And then in verse 8, Zacchaeus says, it says, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, one of the things that's missing from this conversation is, uh, or from this passage, is the conversation that Jesus had with Zacchaeus. There's not much recorded of what Jesus said to Zacchaeus. I imagine they had a pretty good conversation. It's also likely there wasn't much of a conversation at all, or possible at least, that Zacchaeus' heart was changed. He received Jesus into his home, and the very first thing he said was, I'm giving it all away, Lord. That his heart that was changed was immediately ready to follow the Lord and to demonstrate as much with his belongings and his possessions. But there's an important part of this, and that would be the third point, okay? Verses 8 and 9 are the evidence, the evidence of the changed heart, okay? That's the last thing we see in this passage, the evidence of the changed heart. And I would say this is a, an arrow that comes out this side of the heart. Okay, here's the evidence. Now, I, I say that's important because I've mentioned this before and I'll mention it again. We can easily be confused when we read the Gospels and we read the evidences of the saving work of God in our lives and we can consider these the things that change our heart. Okay, so we can get this backwards. We can take the evidence and we can put it over here and we can say, well, if we have these, then our heart is being, then this is what's changing our heart. And let me just tell you, we could do this with Luke chapter 19. We could say, well, there's Zacchaeus. And because he's giving his things away, this is what's changing his heart, the work that he's doing, okay? We could say, because he's gone to everyone and said, listen, I defrauded you and I'm, I'm going to give back fourfold. Look at that. He's doing what he needs to do for his heart to be changed. But that's not at all what's happening in the passage. We, we have to be careful with that, right? The evidence is the product that is now the outward depiction or the outward realization. It is the way that we know that the work has begun and is happening within the heart. So that the faith has been given, that God is drawing, that there's now a health and an honesty and a goodness and a, a God satisfaction that's being worked in the heart. It is the evidence that's coming out of the heart. And we've talked about this through the Gospel of Luke. We've got now a whole list of what we said in each passage. Well, that, there's evidence of salvation. There's evidence of salvation. You'll remember some of these, right? 
one of the evidences of salvation is that the, the heart desires to be near to Jesus. Okay? We see that with Zacchaeus. Another evidence of salvation is that the heart has a hatred for sin, right? We've seen that in a number of different stories. People who say, oh, I, I hate my sin. I, I want to be away from it. I want nothing to do with it. That's Zacchaeus as well. That the heart that is changed by God has thanksgiving and gratitude. That there's compassion for others. And in this passage, I think we see two other evidences of salvation. Two fruits, fruits that are being worked out. Okay, Zacchaeus gives generously. Okay, he gives generously. And he restores completely. Or at least he tries to restore completely. And you see both of those things in the passage, don't you? For Zacchaeus says to Jesus, I now give half of everything I have to the poor, and I will give fourfold to everyone that I've defrauded. And the first thing that I thought when I read this passage was, man, you're not going to have much money left, right? You think about it, half of everything he has. The, and the word possessions that's used here is, doesn't mean money. It means his belongings, right? So when he says half of everything I have to the poor, it's like half of my living room furniture, half of my food, half of all of my possessions, everything that I hold dear, half of it I give to the poor, and fourfold of everything I've defrauded. And being a chief tax collector, the list was long of the people that he had defrauded. I can guarantee you, okay? He says all of this, I give, right? Very simply this morning, as we think about the heart that has changed, it, this is another evidence that God is at work in the heart of Zacchaeus to produce this change that Zacchaeus desires to give generously, that he says these things that I so, so uh, uh, drastically cling to, that I would not let go, that I had an iron-tight uh, grip upon my possessions, I now freely give them up to you, O Lord. I count them as rubbish for your work. Do with them as you wish. I'll, I'll give them away. And not only does that heart desire to give generously, but that heart says, I have been restored. The wrongs that I have done have been righted by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I desire to do the same. I desire when I have done wrong to make it right and even to go above and beyond in making it right. Those are evidences that God has been at work in the heart of Zacchaeus, giving him a changed heart that desires to follow him, all right? Very simply this morning then, we have to ask ourselves the question. Every time we come across a passage that gives us evidences of a changed heart, we have to ask ourselves, do we see this in our own heart? It's a very simple question. Every evidence of salvation, we are meant to stand and to reflect upon. Do we see this in our own hearts? Maybe not perfectly. Maybe not completely. Okay, never in this world. But do we see the evidence that God is at work in us? That He's giving us, taking away our heart of stone, giving us a heart of flesh, and causing us to live according to His law and His will, generously restoring completely the wrongs that we've done. Okay? Very, very simple question to ask. Do we see this in our own lives? I began this morning telling you about my friend Ron because Ron, to me, demonstrated this very thing. That he lived his life with his possessions in an open hand and said, Lord God, take these and do with them as you wish. They're for you. They're from you. They are yours. All that I have is yours, God. Do with it as you wish. Do we see that in our own hearts? Can we challenge one another 
as we examine our own hearts, do we see these things? You see, when Christ sees this in the heart of Zacchaeus, what does he say? He's got words here at the end of the passage. It's very simple. Jesus witnesses the heart of Zacchaeus. He sees that something has changed. The evidence is now before him, and Jesus says this, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus looks at Zacchaeus, and he says, there it is. There's the evidence. It's all I need to see. For your heart has been changed, Zacchaeus, and it is reflected in the way you live. It's reflected in the things that you're doing, the way you're treating your possessions. Okay? Christ came to seek and to save the lost. He gave himself a ransom for many. He himself was generous and restored us fully, as we'll talk about at the Lord's Supper in a second. And now he has made it possible that through the working of the Spirit in our hearts, that our hearts would be changed and we also can live for the glory of God. So let us go and do. Would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we come before you this morning. We thank you that you have given us your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he did not count equality with you something to be grasped. But he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, and he gave himself for us that we might be redeemed. And so, dear Father, we ask that as you work here among your people, that you would make us willing and able to follow you, that you would give us changed hearts, that you would be working in our hearts continually, putting out the old and bringing in the new, and that you would do this, our Lord and our God, for your glory and for our good. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, in just a second, we are going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And as we prepare to take of this table, let me share a few words of introduction and explanation. And I think the children are coming back in from Equip for Worship. So don't mind them as they're making their way in. If you're a parent, and you're looking for your child, look this way, and if they get lost, make sure they find you. We don't want lost children as we're preparing for the Lord's Supper. So this morning in the passage, I'll, I'll put it very simply, Luke chapter 19, we saw reflected in the heart of Zacchaeus, because of his heart being changed, a desire to give generously and a desire to restore completely or to restore fully. But Zacchaeus is, is not the first one to depict this. Uh, everyone who comes after the Lord Jesus Christ, who sees Him, who beholds Him with their eyes, who is uh, having the work of the Spirit in their hearts, is able to reflect first and foremost upon this being demonstrated by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's really what this table depicts. So we know that the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth. 
He took on flesh, human flesh. Uh, He had a real body like all of us. He experienced real suffering and temptation as we do, yet without sin. And that the Lord Jesus Christ lived perfectly before God, God the Father. That He died a death that He did not deserve. That He took the wrath of God the Father in His body, and He experienced that perfectly. The wrath of God poured out upon Him. That He gave to us His righteousness, that He took from us our sin, paid for it perfectly. That He went to the grave and then conquered the grave and conquered death, and He rose victoriously. And now, having risen from the dead, He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, And he doesn't just sit there relaxing. He intercedes on our behalf. He is constantly interceding for his people, pleading for them by his blood. And God the Father hears him, and he works on our behalf, okay? That's what this table is portraying to us. And we know that this table isn't simply done in memory of Jesus. We know that as we partake of the bread and as we partake of the wine, that Jesus is spiritually present here and that the Spirit of God is working in us in a very supernatural way to give us assurance of our salvation. And so, as I mentioned, the, the, the giving generously and the restoring fully, Jesus gives generously of Himself on the cross and He restores fully, not of any wrong that He has done, but of the wrong that we have done against God the Father. He restores us to our Father God that we can now say, Abba, Father. That's what this table portrays to our hearts. That's what it depicts, and that's what the Spirit of God is working within us. Now, before we participate in the Lord's Supper together, let me give you a few instructions. We're going to come serve you today, and we've done it differently, I know. It seems like every month a different way of doing the Lord's Supper. We really desire to be able to serve you and then to partake of the Lord's Supper together. We think this is a good and sufficient way to do that. And so the elders and deacons will come throughout all the aisles to serve you, and we're going to be singing while we're serving you. And if you're participating in the Lord's Supper, you can sit there with your hands open, and and an elder will give you the wafer, and a deacon will come behind and will give you the wine. If you you need gluten-free bread, simply tell the elder who's serving you. I need gluten-free. They'll give it to you. If you need juice and not wine, simply indicate to them, and they will give you the juice, okay? The juice is on the outer ring. Is that correct? Outer ring. Outer ring of the tray. If you're not participating in the Lord's Supper, and you might be wondering, well, why would I not participate? Let me tell you, if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you should not participate in the Lord's Supper. If you are a covenant child, but you haven't made your own profession of faith, before a body of believers, all right? If you're in the communicants class, or if you're just a young child, this table's not for you. But sit there and sing and watch what your parents are doing and, and witness what the other saints around you are doing. It's a beautiful thing, okay? If you're wondering, am I a Christian, am I not a Christian, okay? We would tell you, don't take the Lord's Supper, but talk with an elder afterwards. We often tell you, you ought to have made a public profession of faith and joined yourself in membership to a church. Why do we say that? Because if you've joined yourself in membership, you have sat with elders of a church, you've shared your own testimony, and the elders have said, yes, that's a credible testimony of faith, okay? 
if that's not you, sit and sing. No one's looking at you. There's nothing else going on. Just listen to the words and reflect upon what's happening. Don't feel a pressure to participate in the Lord's Supper. If it is you, if you've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, participate with us. Enjoy the sacrament for it's God's gift to us. It is a, a, a means of grace for the people of God. Once you receive it, hold on to it. We will all take together after we're done singing the first song. There will then be a prayer, and we will stand and sing together our final song. I don't believe that there are any other instructions for the Lord's Supper, so let me pray. Let me share with you the words of institution, and then we will participate together. Let's pray. Dear Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for this gift. We thank you for the gift of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have sent him to this earth, that he died on our behalf. And we now ask that as we celebrate this sacrament, that you would be at work by your Spirit in our hearts, that we would feast on the Lord Jesus Christ that we would know that His blood has been poured out for our sins and that our doubts and our fears would be satisfied, that we would experience a great assurance knowing that as we have sinned, as we now sin, and as we will sin again, these things have been taken to the cross and paid for, that there is now no condemnation, that there is no fear in death, that we have been reconciled to you, our God and our Father. Make that true in our hearts. Help us to live according to that truth by the work of your Spirit. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.